So, that was Christopher Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to my puberty. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. We've got the full team with us today, Jeremy, Arch and Matt, and today we're bringing you the first in our series of episodes um, about the NZIA conference in situ, which was held in February. So in situ was held in Auckland this year. It was actually the first year I've ever been to conference. It was the first time I wasn't in a meeting, so that was really good. Um, it was a fantastic, super strong lineup this year with a really, really strong cadre of international guests and uh, culminating in Sir David RJ. We were lucky enough to interview a number of um, number of the speakers. I'm going to bring some of those to you in other episodes, but a really fantastic um, event this year, and we're looking forward to sharing some of the interviews with you. The speaker who opened the conference, of course, was Christopher Hawthorne, who is our first guest on this podcast. He is the architect critic for the LA Times and I thought his opening statement or presentation at the conference was provocative in a really good way. What did you all think? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was um, really good in terms of setting the scene for the conference. He, in particular, talked about um, the crises that are facing many cities around the world. And I think, you know, obviously LA, where he's from, um, there are a lot of issues there in terms of housing. And certainly here in Auckland, um, those um, issues are, are very pertinent and relevant right now. Um, I like what he um, said about... Uh, the role that architecture has to play in addressing the health of society. And I think that that was a theme that many of the speakers sort of picked up Mm -hmm. on right through the conference. Mm -hmm. I also like the way that he's quite clearly part of this new breed of architectural critics who talk less about isolated pieces of architecture and more about Mm. the role architecture plays in a community and in making up the shape of the city. Michael Kimmelman at the New York Times is another of these. They have quite a different agenda to the the previous generation of critics. And the other thing that came across is the many similarities between Los Angeles and Auckland. And the fact that Los Angeles is no longer the disaster that we all thought it was because it's made such sweeping changes. And that if Auckland was going to continue modelling itself on mm. LA, it wouldn't be doing so badly mm. if it was on the contemporary version mm. of that city. Mm. I like that he had a slide of Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That was really great. Shall we hear from Christopher? Yeah. Yeah. So Christopher, hello, and thank you for joining us at 76 Small Rooms. So I wanted to start by asking you, I know you've only been in Auckland for a day or so, but we often criticise Auckland as being a city that's kind of modelled in LA. Auckland grew up in the age of the freeway and suffers as a result of that. LA's changing radically though, and I wondered if you could tell us about the ways it is changing and how that's affecting the urban condition of the city. Sure. In fact, this transformation, I would say, has become... Well, thank you for having me. I should interrupt myself to say that. It's really nice to be here. Um, That transformation that's happening in Los Angeles has become, in many ways, my chief subject. And also to a certain extent the ways in which Los Angeles which had been a cautionary tale for so much of the world in terms of post-war urban development and dependence on the car and some of the things you just mentioned is now becoming a model in some ways of trying to manage that transformation to a let's say post-suburban city so that's how I've from most of the last decade as I've written about that transformation I and others in LA have described it as a transition to a post-suburban city or to a city that is moving away from the deeply privatized in some ways radically privatized nature of the post-war city into a city that is trying to grapple with and rediscover re-embrace its publicness repair its public realm 
redesign in civic spaces and so forth. So I had, and others had written about it as a kind of binary transition from the post-war city to something new, and the mayor, Eric Garcetti himself, has called it a hinge moment, which is a phrase that he's used to describe this shift. But the more that I wrote about it, the more that I thought about the longer history of Los Angeles, it occurred to me that it was too simple just to talk about it in that binary fashion, and actually that many, well, that first that Los Angeles has a much longer urban architectural history than we tend to remember, even in California, um, and even just as a modern city, to say nothing about its um, colonial or pre-colonial uh, life. And also, perhaps, most significant that many of the things that we're trying or struggling to add to the city, walk, you know, walkable spaces, a kind of pedestrian culture, mass transit, uh, multi-unit, innovative multi-unit housing, ambitious civic architecture, all of those things that Los Angeles in the post-war decades, the Los Angeles that the world knows is infamous for not having, right? Many, if not most of those things, we produced in really remarkable quantities mm -hmm in the pre-war decades in Los Angeles. And in fact, we had the most extensive transit system in the country, if not the world, um, between about 1900 and 1920. It was privately owned, it's important to say, but it was still a streetcar network that covered the entire region, um, from a, the San Fernando Valley down to Long Beach and the beach in Venice and Santa Monica, all the way out to what we call the Inland Empire in San Bernardino, well east of downtown Los Angeles. Um, and so I have begun thinking instead of this binary transition about three distinct phases of the city's modern development and um, now teach a class and run a series of public talks which is called the third Los Angeles which is to suggest um, this that this city um, might fit into that frame. This emerging city might be best thought of as a third LA and that is a somewhat reductive framework, admittedly, but it allows, I think, uh, it was appealing to me because it's both forward-looking, because it really addresses what the city is becoming and acknowledges a longer history of the city um, in a place that's often written off as, as lacking history or being superficial or not having that kind of civic depth. So I think the most important aspect of that for me is that um, in the city's basic DNA, is something before the car, before the freeway, uh, before this private landscape, before the single family house and the residential subdivision. And so what we think of, it's a concept that allows us to question um, what a lot of people, including Angelinos, think of as the kind of eternal condition of urbanism and architecture in Los Angeles, that is to say, dependent on the car and um, dedicated to kind of private existences and to uh, for to making possible kind of individual ambition as opposed to collective ambition if that makes sense um, so that transition this idea of three phases this idea of what the third LA looks like has really become central to my work and my my teaching I would say as well what's precipitated the change that's led to this third LA emerging what happened to, to make that Shift. Very good question. The longer, the long answer, the short answer is that the um, there there has been investment in public transit and demographic change that has made it a different kind of city. The longer version is that the what we think of as a kind of particularly LA dream uh, that you could arrive in Los Angeles in the post-war decades 
and even as a working class or middle class family buy in to to the this private landscape and have a a single family house and a garden um there was a brief moment where that maybe was succeeding or at least succeeding for the white population and that's what Rainer Bannum was writing about and he arrived in LA in the late 60s and his book Architecture of Four Ecologies um, comes out in 71 and that's sort of the most upbeat that's the moment late 60s early 70s where if it does work you know the connection of the freeways to the house and this idea of private uh, ambition is uh, at least briefly working and again, at least for you know one part of the population, it's important to say. But by the 80s and into the early 90s, that dream had completely broken down. So if you read a book like Mike Davis's City of Courts, which comes out in 1990, as a kind of bookend to Rainer Banham, it's suggesting that that dream in a whole bunch of ways is fragmented and broken apart. You can't afford that kind of a house if you're a working class family. Um, the racial tensions that are always uh, lurking beneath the surface in Los Angeles had exploded by the early 90s in the Rodney King riots. Mm. There's a big earthquake in Northridge in 94. So his book was seen as being very prescient and kind of predicting that this downfall of the of the LA, the post-war LA that Rainer Bannum had celebrated. So it really goes back to the fracturing of that individual, individualized dream of the post-war decades. And then slowly there has been an attempt to kind of re to, to create and as I'm suggesting, recreate some new kind of city. So, and the specific markers when people ask, well, when does third Los Angeles start? For me, um, there, I arrived in LA in 2004, so it was just beginning. I would say the first thing that happened before I got there was, and this is something I wrote about, um, was the completion of Walt Disney Concert Hall mm. at the top of Bunker Hill in downtown. So a kind of quintessentially second LA architect, Frank Gehry, who had made his reputation um, exploring in various ways that privatized landscape and the ways that it broke apart later on. So that image I showed of the Melrose, the Danziger studio, mm. becomes by the 80s a much more fragmented and fissured kind of residential architecture that's suggesting the way that that dream is breaking apart. And then, so, but all throughout he's working in this very private language and, 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 and promoting and serving a, a, that kind of a private city. So for him to produce a great collective and democratic piece of civic architecture, which Disney Hall is, is a remarkable early assertion of a kind of new set of values for me. So there are not a lot of, there's very little public architecture that has a democratic spirit in Los Angeles. There are very few places where you can be in one room and, and feel as though you're in a collective room or a democratic room or a public room. Dodger Stadium is like that, the Hollywood Bowl is like that, but there are really very few of those spaces. So Disney Hall, and it's meant in architectural terms, it's very much meant to break down the kind of hierarchies that exist in a typical concert hall. So there are no boxes. You can It's in a vineyard style, so you can see not only the musicians, but you look across the stage and see your fellow citizens. It's modeled very much on Han Sharoon's Philharmonie in Berlin, which is also trying a, a very democratic building for a different set of reasons, trying to avoid the kind of any muscular expression right of state power in Berlin at a, in the post-war decade. So in Los Angeles, that was a very important statement of a belief and investment in the collective. Um, and then in 2006, there were a whole series of immigration rights marches, <clears throat> which were precipitated in an immediate sense by a federal legislation, which was calling for new restrictions on 
immigration policy at the federal level, but um, it was, the marches were all over the country, but they were huge, much bigger in Los Angeles than any other city. So you had hundreds of thousands, maybe even close to a million people in the streets marching on Wilshire Boulevard and Broadway downtown going to City Hall. And as an expression of a new interest in collective space, particularly because Wilshire is the classic automobile boulevard, right? It's where car, car culture and its relationship to urban culture was really invented and pioneered and tested. So to see uh, marchers using that space in downtown was significant, but also significant in announcing that this is a Latino city, that the demographics had shifted, that you know now city of LA and the county of LA are both majority Latino. So it's important to say that as much as what I'm calling third Los Angeles has lessons to learn from first LA in terms of public space and transit, there are also ways in which it's a totally different city. And I'd say chief among those are demographic change, um, this Latino political majority, and um, uh, also a different relationship with nature because of climate change and the way that architecture can have the kind of ease of relationship between inside and outside that it once did. So there's some major differences. So then the immigration marches, so I'd say Disney Hall, these what called the Grand Marche uh, um, immigration uh, protests in 2006, and then 2008, there's uh, the first of the uh, ballot measures to raise the sales tax to pay for transit investment. And that all tax measures in the state of California need a supermajority. They have to get two two thirds vote, and that's a very high bar to cross for any major tax increase. Um, and so the electorate really voted resoundingly that that was a priority for them. And that uh, measure passed with about 67 percent of the vote, and raised over 30 years a total of will raise about 40 billion dollars. And then it went back on the ballot just last November. Um, and that measure, um, which extended the tax and also raised it, will raise just a, a gigantic figure, something like 100 to $120 billion. Not all of that goes to transit, but the lion's share of it does. Uh, and that's a bigger war chest of investment in, 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 in uh, transit infrastructure than any American city yeah. has. And it's yeah. at a moment when the, that public investment is waning dramatically in other American cities. So uh, Los Angeles has this huge amount of investment, which will completely remap. I mean, it will take another probably 15 to 20 years, but we now have the money in hand to completely remake the, the transportation roadmap of the region. Um, and it, we, we will have a comprehensive mature transit system, you know, probably by, by 2035, certainly by 2040, which will be, um, given the scale of the region, a remarkable kind of investment. So there are various signposts along the way that have, um, that have marked this change. And then the other, I'd say the other thing I would mention is that <clears throat> we've simply run out of room to sprawl and we've run out of room to build single family houses. Mm -hmm. So even if we were interested in producing single family houses again, that image I showed of the case study, the famous the stall house, picture by Julia Shulman, those pieces of land are not available anymore. And so, and, and in a larger sense, the region and city have given up on the stream of endless expansion. And the city is, I think, one major characteristic of third Los Angeles is a city and region that's folding back on itself. Mm -hmm. So city of courts begins at the periphery. And Mike Davis famously talks about Southern California, LA being a, a, the city that ate the desert that dreamt of being infinite. And he starts very pointedly out at the edge of, of a region that's still kind of voraciously gobbling up the desert and the, producing that kind of greenfield development. And that there's a real consensus now that that kind of expansion 
doesn't work, it's run its course. Um, the, the price you have to pay if you keep expanding at the edges in terms of a neglected public realm is too high a price to pay. And I think that voting for those transit measures, all kinds of investment in new public realm, it's a city that's building a lot of parks, all reflect the fact that there's now a consensus that it's not possible to grow at the edges and that we do have to fold back in, into the city and develop more densely. Um, and that is a major, I mean, again, as you said, these are issues that are playing out in cities all around the world, mm -hmm. Auckland included. But in Los Angeles, where the identity of the place in the post-war decades was so tied up with growth, and in fact, our chief industry, as many, many writers have pointed out, was growth itself. What people call the growth machine mm -hmm. was our chief, along with Hollywood and aerospace, those were our chief industries. The idea that we could grow our way out of any problem. And so that the fact that that uh, idea has run its course has dramatic implications for the urbanism of the city, the kind of architecture we produce, how we get around, how we live, all those things. Um, so I would say over the last 10 to 15 years, there have been a, a, a number of major moments, changes, political decisions that have suggested a new Does this city make you, Oh, sorry. Does this yeah. make you optimistic about the future of the city? Um, in some ways, yes. some ways, no. I'm not optimistic about the kind of political leadership that will be required to accelerate this shift and make it m as equitable as possible. So Are you my, talking about regional political leadership or national? Uh, mostly, no, in the city. So oh. in the, uh, civic leadership, um, we have a weak mayor system. Uh, we have most of our power located in the individual city council districts. Mm -hmm. But in a larger sense, there is still, there's a kind of strong backlash emerging to the emergence of this, uh, to the rise of this third Los Angeles, this new city. There are a lot of people who worry that we're giving up something um, fundamental to the identity of Los Angeles. And the people who feel that way tend, they're not always um, homeowners, they tend to be homeowners. They tend to be older and they tend to vote more often. So they have a lot of equity in those houses. They have a lot of personal wealth. Sounds familiar. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we had those here too. They have a lot of um, political clout. They have a lot of incentives to protect the status quo, which has made them, you know, that has produced a lot of equity for them and made their, they've, you know, um, had a, a very nice kind of civic existence. So we have a ballot measure next month on the ballot called Measure S. Which calls, which is a kind of critique of the planning process and of what its backers see as overdevelopment in Los Angeles. So it calls for a two-year moratorium on any large-scale plan uh, uh, projects that require a general plan amendment. Which in Los Angeles, given the strange way that planning has developed, is almost every project of scale, including all affordable housing of any scale. And it's my sense that. The, there is a lot of construction going on in Los Angeles, but it's my sense that it only seems like it's out of control or qualifies as overdevelopment in comparison to a period in which we have kept uh, the production of new housing in particular at artificially low levels, starting with a, a bunch of slow growth and no growth movements in the 1980s. So since the 80s till today, we have underbuilt by the latest research in LA County by a million housing units in terms of how much the population has grown by. So that obviously has made the affordability problem worse. And I think people now see the construction that's happening as being out of control, but it's only in comparison to a period where it was kept artificially low. And mm -hmm. there was very little housing or any other kind of construction. 
um, uh, housing being built or other kind of construction in the city. Um, so there's a pretty fierce political battle uh, playing out at the moment, and the mayor, whose name is Eric Garcetti, who's very sophisticated about planning and has come out against Measure S quite strongly, nonetheless has to kind of play both sides and has to pay lip service to those homeowners associations and those who would protect the, the status quo or argue for going back to... I mean, the, the original name of this um, measure before it got a letter from the city, Measure S, was the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative, which to me is just a half step away from the na Neighborhood Purity Initiative. <laughs> it rings, of course, in the, in the states these days with all kinds of echoes of Make America Great Again and the kind of nostalgia that you see. And of course, if you say that to the backers of Measure S, it just makes their heads explode. They don't... Um, they don't agree with that at all, but there is a kind of nostalgia baked in. And to me, it's an, this is the toughest part to argue. It's a nostalgia for, as in terms of the Trump phenomenon, it's a nostalgia for a city that was not a majority Latino city that was controlled by Anglo elites and, that, um, and where the power and the wealth was really located and often derived by, produced by the single family housing stock. So if you're lucky enough to buy in, in the 60s or 70s, um, you know, it's it's been one of the big, most remarkable run-ups in, in residential home value in the history of capitalism. It's not like these, and this is true of my own parents. I grew up in Northern California. My parents bought the house I grew up in in the early 70s. It's not just that these houses are worth five or 10 times what people paid for them. They're worth 40 or 50 or 60 mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. So in one, in one generation or two, a generation and a half, you have this incredible wealth. And so those people mostly retired or entering, you know, facing retirement age have a huge amount to protect. And so the ways in which that has not just shaped, but in my view, warped the political conversation is something that I have a great deal of pessimism about. <laughs> Again, like Trump, it's a question, it's a, it, the question is, is this a kind of last gasp of a demographic that's fading? And if you look at the larger demographic picture, you get a much different political uh, future emerging or is it something that has the potential to really um, change or slow down or damage the evolution of the city and country if you mm. if I can jump back and forth between yeah. those two things yeah how so. do you think those tensions between say a, a, a national level um, political situation and a local mm. situation will play out too do you think that LA sort of operates as, as more of a city state and so will be somewhat immune from the changes that are going on um, at, uh, at federal level? Right. <laughs> or not? <laughs> um, that's sort of the million dollar question um, and uh, Trump has been very explicit in saying that he thinks, as he told an interviewer the other day, that California is out of control. Mm. Um, that it because they don't uh, want to be part of it, they look to succeed, don't they? And, succeed. And because the they have he, he one of his um, uh, kind of straw men is the sanctuary city movement. So um, or, or cities that welcome in immigrants and um, have various. LA is not officially a sanctuary city, but he has vowed to crack end sanctuary city policies and punish any cities that um, don't give up sanctuary city status by withholding federal funds. It's, the question is complicated by the fact that um, California is actually one of the few donor states in the United mm -hmm. States, meaning that it actually um, uh, sends more money to Washington than we get back. Um, in terms of tax mm -hmm. um, money, we send more money to the federal government than we get back in services. So. Um, how that plays out and what it would mean to withhold money and whether we could then, you know, withhold tax revenue mm. and how that would play out is 
um, kind of an extreme version of, of uh, an extreme scenario, perhaps. But this is the key question. I think the um, it's not just that um, California or Los Angeles County didn't vote for Trump. It's also that during the campaign, he made uh, a point of uh, using, to our ears, very old-fashioned rhetoric about what he called the inner city and how inner cities were out mm -hmm. of control and sort of, um, uh, which is a very thinly veiled, if veiled at all, kind yeah. of dog whistle, Rachel dog whistle, mm -hmm. um, about uh, how cities operate. And the par great paradox of this, of course, is that he is a product of New York City and spent his entire, spent his entire life and career in New York and is spending a good chunk of his presidency in Trump Tower in Manhattan. So his relationship with cities is very odd. And in a lot of, I mean, some people who know his political background more um, than I do would say that it's his relationship with urban elites and institutions like the New York Times, for example, and always wanting and never getting approval from those institutions in New York City that has created the, the, um, the kind of strange psychological mm -hmm. profile that makes up his um, has made up his political campaign and his political rise. So um, that question of how, the role that Los Angeles plays is fascinating. And the, at least so far, the at the state and local level, our elected officials have been very outspoken uh, about not wanting to compromise any of what they think of as the, the values of the state. And that includes a kind of embrace of immigration and mm -hmm. um, that kind of demographic change. Um, and I think it's been a wake-up call for all of us who live in places like L.A. to realize, I mean, I don't think I realized until the campaign, until Trump won the Republican nomination, exactly how, what proportion of the national electorate is white. I thought it was much lower, if you had asked me, mm. hmm. you know, a year ago, what percentage of Americans are white or what are white males, for example, or what percentage of the voting age public is white. I would have guessed a much smaller figure than mm. something like 70 mm. percent, 75 percent. So that's a huge voting block. It won't be for that much longer, and it's not a big voting block in LA. Mm. But nationally, you can play to those kinds of identity politics. And and so the last thing I'll say about the relationship to Washington is that there's been a funny reversal of strategies that. Um, States use that 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 uh, Democrats and Republicans use vis-a-vis -vis the federal government. So, during the Obama administration, the Southern states talked a lot about states' rights and and mm. felt that the federal government was overstepping its bounds. <laughs> and it's funny to see California and politicians in California begin to talk about the importance of states' rights, which is not something you've ever I've ever heard in my lifetime from any California mm -hmm. politician. Um, and so the 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 kind of rhetorical strategies have completely reversed themselves. Um, you showed a project by <coughs> Michael Maltzen in mm. your talk, and we had Julie Eisenberg here a couple of years ago mm. showing a lot of her really interesting medium density and social housing projects. From the outside, it looks as if LA is doing some really interesting, creating some really interesting work in these areas. And I wondered if you could tell us, this is a big issue in Auckland at the moment, what lessons has LA learned from the provision of higher density and social housing that a city like Auckland could learn from? I don't actually know how much of a model we are because um, we have so many constraints that make it difficult to produce ambitious multifamily housing. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say. We still have very low height limits in most of the city. Um, even dense parts of the city have often a 45-foot height limit. Um, and 
So that has um, been a constraint that has produced a kind of sameness in the, in the um, typical apartment, multifamily apartment. Um, and so I would say that. I would say also that we do have this longer history to draw on. So when I mentioned the first LA, we had, we have a long history of first uh, uh, bungalow courts. So in and around Pasadena, we had this great history of bungalows that were grouped together, much like the Barbara Bester project that I showed. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of the single family house, but brought very closely together. Mm -hmm. It's still, I think, uh, making sense for the climate and the kind of horizontal nature of Los Angeles. Um, and then there's a, a great modernist architect who's been forgotten and rediscovered many times over called Irving Gill, who at the same time, or perhaps even slightly earlier than Adolf Loos and any of the modernist pioneers in Europe were doing really ruthlessly, you know, the earliest experiments in modern, <coughs> stripped down modernist housing. He was doing projects like that in San Diego and then in Los Angeles by 1915 or so. Um, and a lot of those projects were multifamily. So, uh, and then a lot of the early projects of Neutra and Schindler, mm -hmm. you know, the great emigre modernists in Los Angeles were also multifamily, um, although they were certainly doing their share of single family houses. Um, so I think part of the value is, 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 um, is drawing on those longer term uh, existing uh, prototypes from the pre-war decades. Um, and then just testing out, I think the importance, of the major thing is just the importance of um, these basic constraints and seeing which ones you can get rid of. So the height limit really is difficult to dislodge in most neighborhoods. And then even this, so the, the Barbara Bester project I showed, Blackbirds, is a small lot subdivision project, which means that there was a law passed, an ordinance about 15 years ago, which was another one of the sort of signposts in the along the way to this third Los Angeles that allowed um, in multifamily neighborhoods um, these freestanding houses to be brought together, which are sold. So you have a higher level of density than is otherwise allowed, but they're sold as single family houses. Mm -hmm. So for tax reasons and others, that's more appealing to a lot of people than a condo. And you have a kind of communal space in the middle. Um, so in some ways I'm frustrated that those experiments haven't borne more fruit. Um, because because the architects are so restricted, and particularly the restrictions have to do with height, but also with parking requirements, mm -hmm. and the fact that the a huge swath. I mean, if you look at a zoning map of the city of Los Angeles, um, you know maybe two thirds of the land is still zoned R1 single family. So, mm -hmm. and the, as I mentioned, there's a lot of uh, money and political do donation support. You know, protecting those neighborhoods, and it will be a long time before any of them are upzoned. Um, and in fact, there's even political pressure to try to downzone some multifamily neighborhoods instead of moving in the other direction. So it's a funny moment. The pressure, the investment, uh, the interest, I think, in most citizens is for a denser, more vertical city. Um, but that's those that momentum is running into various roadblocks. Um, but certainly, the housing that I'm writing about is all a, an experimental multifamily project of one kind or another, whether it's Koning Eisenberg or Barber, Michael Maltzen, or um, people like that. Um, that's where the interesting action is, certainly. Um, but it's it, it hasn't it hasn't produced as many 
um, really impressive projects as I would have liked. And in, and in fact, the vast majority, there's a weird combination of seismic requirements, fire codes, height limits, and um, uh, kind of traditional ways of building that have all conspired to produce a particular kind of typical apartment block that is really depressing. So what architects call five over one or mm. like a, a, a concrete podium parking deck mm. with usually one or two levels of subterranean parking and then a stick frame, wood frame building that if you go above 75 feet, you have to go to concrete or steel frame for fire code. And so developers have basically figured out how to exploit, to, to pack the most units in without triggering, mm. going as high as they can and as dense as they can without triggering um, the steel or concrete frame requirement. And so you have, I would say, 99 out of 100 of the new apartment multifamily projects that have been built are these developer projects, often without an architect, that exploit those that combination of codes you know, within an inch of their lives and produce um, not very livable spaces in great contrast to what Alison Brooks just you know, said, the kind of generosity that she's aiming for is certainly not expressed in those projects <clears throat> that we see in LA. And it's a kind of new, bigger, ungainly version of the dingbat. So we had this really interesting uh, post-war uh, multifamily type called the dingbat apartment, which Rainer Banham and other people wrote about, which is where you drive right underneath, and it's often a building on POT. They're not very good seismically. They're all having to be retrofitted. They're called dingbats. Is this a phrase you guys know? No. Okay. no. Um, they're called dingbats because um, they often had names. All the apartment buildings had names to market them as a kind of these kind of glamorous post-war. So they're often called the Shangri-La or the, mm -hmm. you know, the um, Caribbean Breeze or the whatever. And uh, and that name was often written in this flowing script across the facade, which is otherwise blank stucco. And then there was often a a, gra a dingbat is a graphic design word meaning a, just a little doodad or a, and that there was a little decorative element that was added next to the name of Shangri-La and that dingbat on the facade gave um, became the name of the whole building type and those were derided um, by a lot of critics not Bannon but a lot of other critics as being impersonal and 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 being soulless, but in with time, I think we've looked back at them with much more fondness because they were kind of often. A, if you guys remember the TV program Melrose Place, which was that kind of that's a dingbat apartment, courtyard apartment around a pool, kind of low to medium density, multi in terms of multifamily work in a kind of communal spirit. Um, that is lost in these bigger buildings where there's just there's almost no public space, communal space, and there's so many mm -hmm. units packed in. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not super optimistic about this moment. I think they're interesting. All the smartest architects are trying to, and I'm sure Barbara will talk about this, all the smartest and most talented architects are trying to figure out how to work within those constraints and where possible how to get the laws rewritten to be a little more flexible. Um, but it's a tough it's a tough time, and I mean the parking requirement is the major thing. So you still, if you build a single family house, you have to do 400 square feet of covered parking. Yeah. If you do um, this kind of small lot, you have to have it's been brought down a little bit, but you used to have have to have two parking spaces for every unit, and mm. like it just makes it impossible um, to make it work. If you do the same thing long enough, then your rules shape around that. Thing yes, and, exactly. And shifting mm. it on to the next model is hard. Yeah, exactly. 
One of the nice things about this conference is getting international perspective on our practice here and the theme is inspiration and provocation. And um, our question really we can ask each person is, if you would leave New Zealand with one message to inspire or provoke local practice, what would that message be? Wow. Um, I don't know enough about the local practice to feel confident, too confident answering that question. Um, It'll be carved in stone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess it would be just stop uh, looking to America <laughs> for a whole bunch of, in a whole bunch of ways, politically, architecturally, urbanistically, and otherwise. Not that, not that architect, not that United States is a great architectural beacon at the moment, but um, just in terms of culture and how we've, you know, made our cities. Mm. There are probably other places where um, can draw more appropriate inspiration. And even I should say, even Los Angeles in the time. Another thing that's really changed in the time that I've been in LA. I mean, this is an interesting question to think about along these lines, where you look for cultural precedent or inspiration or cautionary tales, whatever, mm. where you cast your gaze when you're looking out from your... And I think New Zealand is in, in a unique position because it obviously can look everywhere, but obviously probably looks back to the UK, looks to Australia, um, looks to the west coast of the United States mm. to a certain extent. I mean, that's my sense as an outsider. But I've noticed a real shift just in Los Angeles, and I guess this would be what I would leave you with, is that that perspective can really change dramatically in ways that can really change the culture of a city and its architecture. So when, the, when I arrived in Los Angeles in 2004, the city was very much still looking to, to Chicago and New York and London and European precedents in terms of its urbanism, even though those models are a very poor fit for Los Angeles in terms of its location, the way it's developed, its cultural history, its demographics, and all the rest. So after Disney Hall was built, Eli Broad was very interested in remaking all of Grand Avenue, which is a street along the top of Bunker Hill, where now Eli has his own museum next mm -hmm. to Disney Hall. And he was talking very directly in interviews with me and other people about wanting Grand Avenue to be our Champs-Élysées, as he put mm. it, and very directly borrowing these European models that were so out of place, in my view, in Los mm. Angeles, that any attempt to kind of impose that model on Los Angeles would be disastrous. And there are all kinds of examples of that, how we look to, you know, um, uh, uh, mayors would go on trips and come back and say, why, we, why can't we have a skyline or a public realm that looks more like Chicago or New York, when, of course, those cities had developed in completely different ways and weren't so relevant. But what started to happen very soon after I got there, and it's really accelerated, is that we've begun to look, to give up on looking that way and begun to look to South America mm. and to Asia much more directly. Um, so a few examples of that, the LA Phil has a music director, Gustavo Dudamel from Venezuela, who's quite young, who's changed that institution. Um, the, soon after I arrived, UCLA and USC, the two big architecture schools were picking deans or chairmen. Mm -hmm. And uh, UCLA picked Atoshi Abe from, from Sendai in Japan, and USC picked Chingyun uh, Ching Ma from China. So both of those schools were being led by Asian architects. Um, there was another marker, I think, of the emergence of third Los Angeles was something called Ciclovia, which started in LA in 2010. And it's a, basically a street festival that it exists in many cities around the world. But it closes 
major network of streets on us in our case on a Sunday to car traffic and opens it up to bicycles and pedestrians and it was modeled after Ciclovia which was started in Bogota and um, it has been a hugely influential um, series of events in Los Angeles to not just to sort of herald a new bike culture in LA which is certainly part of it but to give people a way to be in the streets in a different way and realize that streets are public spaces and that um, moving through the city at the scale of a pedestrian or a cyclist allowed has allowed us to look at our architecture of the city in a completely new way, just changing that perspective yep. and, and pace. So to be walking in the middle of a big boulevard and look at the buildings on Wilshire Boulevard, for example, with no car traffic, it was has been a, ra a kind of radical transformation in the perspective people have, and it's opened up all kinds of new ways of thinking about how the public spaces of the city can be used because we'd given them so... Um, we'd given them over so much to automobile culture. So there are a whole bunch of ways in which we began to, um, in a very self-conscious way, import models from different parts of the world. And that's been a, um, it's been a very productive shift, in my opinion. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Sure. Enjoy the pleasure. rest of the conference. Sure. Thank you. Sure. Thanks very yeah. much. Yeah. Thank my, you. Pleasure. my pleasure. So that was Christopher Hawthorne. Um, and the thing that struck me with his sort of description of what's going on in LA and his focus is how similar it is to Auckland and how sort of parallel it is, how many things, mm. including sort of political and, um, and regulatory changes there are and the, all that restructuring of the place mm -hmm. to make it a better city. We should also add that the Measure S that he's talking about, the proposal that was being voted on in Los Angeles to um, basically impose a moratorium on development for two years got voted down quite convincingly, which is good news, the NIMBYs lost. Um, but interestingly, what it seems to be leading to in the discussion in the LA Times since then is that the city needs to take a closer look at planning rules overall, um, because it sounds from what Christopher was saying that they're wildly inconsistent and perhaps unnecessarily restrictive in areas, mm. and that there is now hope that those rules can be revamped mm -hmm. in a wider sense. And, and they need the super majority, where it's not just 50%, mm. right? They need a two-thirds or three-quarter majority. They, so they as you say, it's pretty convincingly overturned. Mm. Mm. The, uh, the, our next podcast was with uh, Barbara Bessor, and she was is one of the architects dealing with those planning controls and the regulations and the fact that they need you know, a six-inch gap between houses so that you know, they're building two walls side by side to build separate houses mm -hmm. to, but to get some density. So, yeah, really interesting to see how the creative architects there are trying to s sort of fight against those rules to achieve better housing outcomes. Mm. Well, I think that's that thing that a lot of people would say is the same here, where you basically get developers and designers get very canny at absolutely mm. maximising within that boundary and that limit, and you don't get the innovation and you also don't get the variety. So you sort of fill the container up to its lid in every kind of case. Mm. Yeah, and Christopher talked about that, um, you know, at some extent in terms of, you know, seeing these um, uh, replications of the same kind of development, which mm -hmm. were essentially a diagram of the fire codes and mm -hmm. the planning controls and so on, and also the, the you know, tied into with that the lending criteria as well on which yeah. some banks will um, loan money. One thing that I wish that I had asked him, and this is something for you listeners to ponder perhaps, is that I also went to, I visited Houston about a year ago, and in planning terms that city is a disaster, but it's incredibly affordable, and there are a lot of spaces within that very low density, shamefully low density mm. city, 
for inventiveness. And I think LA is also benefiting from the fact, in a way, that its sprawl meant there are a lot of pockets of the city that are kind of still available for development and reinvention. And there's an interesting thought there that I'm not articulating very well about this idea of not completing a city, but leaving pockets available um, so that the city can continue to grow and evolve and reinvent itself. And planning rules have a big part to play in that, I think. Well, it's an, almost like an unconscious uh, land banking. It's the, the, the rules have actually allowed, mm. if, if the rules then change, for, for all of these pockets of land to actually be developed in quite a new, different way. I mean, you could see LA over the next 50 years developing quite a, a different way from what it has done over the past sort of century or so. Soon all those car parks will be turned into something else. You know, we don't need multi-story car parks. Car parks. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, you know, they're already presenting opportunities yeah. for building over car parks here, um, and that's exactly right. There's sort of gaps left over. So one of the biggest kind of <coughs> mumbles and nods of agreement when we were talking with Christopher was when he talked about there's a certain kind of um, certain group of people in LA who have disproportionate political influence, they've benefited, they've got a lot of equity out of the rise in the property prices. And under the theme of what we all think we might learn from looking to LA, what do you think about that? There are spooky parallels to the city in which we all live, huh? Spooky, yeah. I mean, I think that's a worldwide issue. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, um, constrained to LA or London. Mm. You've seen that globally. Is generational, yeah, being absolutely. distinctly generational, yeah. and about the lift in property. So, you make your investment of money in property rather than other things, and that property's floated really well. Yeah, mm. and also, you know, we have now have a higher proportion of people living in cities around the world than we do out of cities. Mm-hmm. The, the whole nature of um, uh, habitation has changed in that sense globally. So, yeah. I thought it was interesting too. We often look to LA and to the western side of America to for our precedents and sort of he suggested don't worry about that we're looking elsewhere we're looking beyond our shores to find inspiration for us so why would you look at us I thought it was quite nice as well quite a um, nice bit of advice and the fact that the successes that LA has had which Christopher described urbanistically they've come from a series of small innovations and small developments it isn't about a grand statement um, but about block by block development by development, making sure that they get things as right as possible for the contemporary condition of the city. And I found that one of the most encouraging parts of what he talked about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I actually am a great believer in, in those sort of almost smaller catalytic projects as opposed to the great master plan. I think in a way they have a, a kind of a, perhaps greater power to, for, to let a city evolve um, in its own way with its own flavour and in a way can be more powerful than having a master plan which is supposed to systematically build out. Mm. And Barbara talks specifically about finding new models, new yeah. ways of dealing with the same rules to achieve better outcomes. Yeah. Which is in our next podcast, which seems like a good place to end this one. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. This is 76 Small Rooms. We'll be back in a little while's time with our next episode um, with LA architect Barbara Bistel. And a last thank you to the NZIA for helping arrange the interviews that are making the basis of these podcasts. Yeah. That's it from 76 Small Rooms. Bye. Bye. Bye.